Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from uh, somewhere outside of New York City. Uh, Our friend and the intrepid reporter for the New York Times, David Sanger, uh, is in Geneva, Switzerland, following the president. I think he's just gotten off of Air Force One, literally, and uh, been at a background briefing. Uh, where are we right now in the run-up to the um, Biden-Putin summit, David? Well, we're in the really interesting part of the pregame show. So um, uh, let me tell you what we learned. And, and actually, the background briefing was on Air Force One. Uh, it was done by a senior administration official who came back to tell us a little bit about what the atmospherics will look like tomorrow, but um, not very much about what Biden's going to go say to Putin. Uh, I've, I've got some other reporting on that. Uh, so let me just start off with the atmospherics. They're going to meet at about one o'clock in the afternoon at, you know, uh, a wonderful old pile of a Swiss palace. Uh, the Swiss, uh, the president of the Swiss Confederacy is going to be there, you know, kind of like, like the like, like the sumo um, uh, Shinto priest uh, uh, judge who sort of steps in uh, to referee on all of this, but then he will withdraw. And we're expecting that this will go four or five hours, maybe longer. Uh, initially, it's going to be just the president and uh, Putin and each of their uh, foreign ministers, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov, the uh, longtime Russian foreign minister. And then it's going to expand to five on each side. So the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, will come in some some other NSC uh, officials as well. Um, you know, traditionally, David, these have all been about basically controlling nuclear weapons and then working out other parts of the relationship. And then for a while in the Yeltsin era and a little beyond, it was about whether or not you could integrate um, Russia with the West. And this one, it's going to be a bit about nuclear weapons and strategic stability, but it's really going to be about how we're going to avoid spinning into a really serial cyber conflict. And I think it's fair to say that this is the first Soviet or Russian U.S. summit where cyber is going to take equal ranking with nuclear. And that really tells you something about where we are. Good. Well, that's a good briefing. I uh, I did a column on this uh, yesterday for the Daily Beast, and so I called around to a few senior administration officials um, I know, and uh, some here, some traveling with the president, and I've uh, got a readout that was pretty similar to that. A um, couple of points that I'd love to hear your reaction to. One, 
uh, apropos of what you were just saying, you know, they, they were saying the main message here is to set guardrails in the relationship. They don't expect big um, announcements. They think that Putin has every reason to want this to work as much as Biden does, that Biden has no desire to turn this into a show or to um, dunk on Putin. They expect some conversation about Iran, which is an area where they think there may be some progress. They did talk about cyber and with respect to cyber um, and supportive of your uh, thesis, um, the one of the senior officials with whom I spoke said that the, um, uh, the, the meeting tomorrow is gonna to be a kind of a direct extension of the first two conversations between Biden and Putin, um, especially the second one in which Biden essentially laid down the, um, uh, the penalties to Russia for uh, crossing certain red lines, some of which had to do with cyber. I think that's right. Uh, and guardrails is the right phrase here. Um, now, the, the other thing that they have said um, is, you know, very, you know, about four or five days ago when they were leaving, um, uh, Jake Sullivan said, we expect to enter this meeting with the wind at our back. Uh, and uh, the message that I got from them and that I, I, I think they want to deliver, you know, is that the key points were... Um, were made really by Biden in the past five days by saying the alliances are stronger, by re, uh, 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 you know, invigorating, um, you know, the key missions, whether it's with the UK or with the G7 or with um, NATO or, or with the EU. Um, and, you know, the, the, the message to Putin in that regard is we're working with our allies. Um, uh, we're doing the blocking and tackling uh, we are patient, but we believe in the alliance and we believe in um, uh, Article 5. Um, and there was a meeting with the Baltic leaders that underscored that. Um, how do you react to that, David? So I thought the wording yesterday on Article 5 was interesting. So here you previously had a president who um, wouldn't even utter the words Article 5 in uh, President Trump. And you heard Joe Biden say, it's a sacred obligation. That's sort of interesting. That's not just, it's a treaty alliance that he was actually raising it to a moral uh, point. Um, what's the implication of the thought that Putin does not want this to go awry? I think he doesn't want the summit to go awry. But Putin's only got one superpower, and it is the power of being a disruptor. Other than that, he's running an economy the size of Italy that happens to have 1,550 deployed nuclear weapons. And so I'm not sure it's in his interest to do anything in the cyber realm other than to feign agreement that we're all gonna to come together and go deal with this scourge because really it's hurting us as much as it's hurting you. And teenagers these days, they do awful things with computers and all of these accusations about Russia, well, they're all false. He said as much during the NBC interview. 
You guys just, everything that goes wrong, every time your cyber defenses fail, you blame the Russians. And there is a, you know, there's a tiny element of truth to that. But the fact of the matter is that there's a reason that Vladimir Putin has turned to using cyber weapons to undercut the United States, whether it is for uses of information warfare or whether it's for something like solar winds that makes us question the integrity of our own computer systems or whether it's for plain old espionage. It's because he can't afford a nuclear war. He knows that. He can bring out all the new nuclear weapons he wants, but he knows he can't use them, but he can use his cyber weapons every day. And they are a reminder that he's still there and he still has the power to get in the way of the West's great experiment. So um, we are also joined now by uh, Evelyn Farkas, former senior um, government official with a specialty in Russia. She has her own consultancy. She ran for Congress recently. Most importantly, she's our friend. Hello, Evelyn, how are you? Hello, sorry, I, I'm late. I thought it was, I, I had some confusion with the time. Well, that's okay. We've been getting briefed by David, who is in Geneva, who's just gotten off Air Force One, um, about where we're going with this thing. And I thought maybe one place to begin with this is, since David's there and in the midst of it, maybe you have a question for him or a thought on what he just said that he can react to. Well, I mean, I think I don't, I guess I don't have a question because I just talked to someone who's also there with, with, the, with the president. So I have, I have all the questions I had were answered. Um, but um, in terms of what's, what their expectations are, which are pretty much my expectations, um, I don't know. Did you hear anything interesting on the plane over, David? I, I think that they've set their expectations pretty low, Evelyn. Uh, and partly that's because it's always easier to out form. Uh, and partly that's because it's going to be important for them tomorrow to appear to be controlling the narrative. And, you know, when I ran through the, the run-up of the day, David, the most interesting thing is there will be no joint press conference. The Americans were not about to go give Putin a, a sort of equal stage, and I can understand why they wanted to go do that. But Putin's going to have the first press conference, and Biden isn't going to come out until Putin's over. Which is good which is good because we get the last word and we've That's had right. just enough of the Russian government telling the American people what our president said to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I'm, I'm um, alluding so for the listeners, I'm alluding to the Trump era, you know, when yes. we wouldn't even have a press release coming out, giving our version of events, the Russian president would give his version of events, which you can't rely on. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened. And um, so uh, I think that you're going to um, see uh, pretty graphically the president arguing that he set certain what David called before guardrails. And guardrails, David, I think is the best we can hope for here. Yeah. Um, another way to think about guardrails is they're not all that different from red lines. If yeah. you go beyond the guardrails, you're going to drive off the cliff or we're going to push you there. And I think the big question for Biden is, is he willing to deliver on that? Is he able to deliver on that? Because the fear that has always happened in dealing with Russia, whether it's in the cyber realm or whether it's in the poisonings uh, or others is people think about sanctions. Then they think about economic sanctions because they're you know, the perfect middle ground between doing something kinetic and doing nothing, right? 
And then they say, well, you know, we've done these sanctions before and they haven't changed Russian behavior. That's and because they have not been tailored properly. They, they probably haven't, but if they haven't been tailored pro properly, Evelyn, they haven't been tailored properly across the Bush administration, the Obama administration, yeah, yeah. the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. So it's been a very bipartisan effort yes, to, to badly tailor sanctions. <laughs> I'm not sure the question is whether they've been tailored. I think the question is, we know what it is, what sanctions would really hurt. But the fear is that he's got ways of escalation. And our cyber defenses are so weak as we learned in Colonial Pipeline, as we learned again with the beef processor last week and so forth, that he's got endless ways to go escalate. And so, that's a problem that Biden hasn't fundamentally solved. And he so, can't until we actually build up serious defenses. So let me pose a question to you and first to David and then to Evelyn, but similar question. Um, I, and, you know, in my estimation, the, the Biden trip so far has been quite successful. You've had mm -hmm. the, the, the vaccine pledge, you've had a very good G7 meeting, you had a, a, a meeting on the Atlantic Charter, agreement on the Atlantic Charter with the UK, you had a good meeting um, with NATO, uh, that you got the NATO to mention China more than they wanted to. There were 10 mentions in the communique. There were 60 plus mentions of Russia in the communique. You then had the EU um, uh, meetings and, and that began with an announcement of something that sort of go under the radar, but some kind of an agreement on Boeing and Airbus, which is, you know, when I was in the government, this was an issue, you know, this has been an issue for a long, long time. That's a lot of progress. It went well. And of course, Pew released a poll that showed that confidence in 12 leading countries was up 58% um, Biden over Trump. That's all pretty good. Now you're gonna get to this, there's a lot of focus on it. And there's a tendency, David, you know, you'll just have to acknowledge this. It's not true where you are, but it is someplace of gotcha in the media. And you know, the gotcha tendency is gonna to be to say, well, yes, but Here's the problem with the Putin meeting. And one of the things where they will not have a satisfactory response is Navalny and dealing with the opposition. Uh, they will probably not have a very satisfactory response with regard to Ukraine. It's possible that Putin will make some kind of snide remarks about January 6th as he has done in the past few days. Where do you think the vulnerabilities for um, these readouts and the, the outcomes to this meeting are David and then Evelyn. You know, I don't think people are expecting a big group of takeaways here. I think the best you could hope for is that they're going to each task groups of their aides to meet on some of these issues and try to develop some things that they can work on together. Uh, you mentioned one early in the broadcast, uh, Iran, obviously one they've got some interest in. North Korea, one where they've got some common interests. If, in. if I can interject, um, my, my, my impression talking to administration officials, they're fairly, I mean, they're guarded, but they're fairly optimistic around Iran. Yes, I think, look, they've got an agreement that is, is written in blue right now. They've got to get past the Iranian elections, uh, which are, you know, end of the week. And um, then they think there's going to be a deal. That's a big deal. David just disappeared. Maybe he will join us again. Evelyn, maybe. Uh, there I am. Oh, there Sorry. Go ahead. 
Well, I mean, so it, it, my response to this is that we aren't expecting anything out of Vladimir Putin's mouth in response to, you know, President Biden that's going to reassure us necessarily right in the meeting or, um, or result in some new initiative. I mean, to the extent that they're interested in talking about nuclear arms control, they'll, they'll maybe have a meeting because they like having those kinds of meetings. It gives them stature. I don't think they're interested in any conventional arms control talks. I don't think they're interested in any cyber, cyber operation, you know, cyber arms control talks, although that's, that would be helpful, but, you know, because we really do need to set up some rules of the road there that, you know, the guardrails, which we don't have in, in that arena. We do have them when it comes to nuclear weapons. Um, so I, I think that the best that we can hope for from the meeting is that Putin listens, he takes our president seriously, he, he then goes home and worries about potential consequences of ongoing reckless behavior or even you know, taking action on other items that he might have contemplated. And he you know, reins in his aggressive behavior. And that's the best we can hope for. I'm afraid though, that before he does that, it, it, that will not be enough, that he will, have, he will go home and then he'll plan something else to test President Biden and the United States and our allies. And, and this is really with our allies. I mean, President Biden has successfully rallied everyone around him, as you mentioned, in the communique at the G7 with the, with the, with the um, Asian allies as well. I mean, so eventually what will happen is that Putin will find himself in a situation where he wants to test us. He still has all those forces arrayed on the border with Ukraine and in the Black Sea. He's got, of course, Navalny. He can do whatever he wants with Navalny, which could put President Biden in a bad situation. Um, I mean, morally and and in terms of perception. And, you know, there are a whole host of things that Russia can do. In the lead up to this, they've been incredibly aggressive. And, you know, we just read the story, didn't happen just now, but about the murder of innocent civilians in car in Central African Republic. Um, there, there's, there's the specter of, of, of more innocent killing of civilians in Syria and the pocket that's stranded up there by Idlib, um, which really the Russians would have the power to, to change the calculus there on the part of the Syrian government if they wanted to spare some lives. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a lot that the Russians can do to continue to demonstrate that they don't care, that they're not, they're not deterred by the president's language. So I'm, hope, I'm hoping that he gets fairly concrete about the, the possible consequences. And the reason I use that language is because I don't want him to set a red line because I think that can lead to a trap that then he's, he's got to do this particular thing, you know? I mean, in the case of the Syria-Obama red line, it was, you know, we're going to bomb them. And, and if we didn't bomb them, then we weren't, we weren't enforcing the red line. So I think um, it's, it's wise for him not to spell out too concretely, but to give some examples of things we could do. that are There's going to be one concrete one that's been made pretty clear to us, Evelyn. It's the ransomware stuff. And it's, it's a little bit yeah. easier for, um, for Putin in this case, because we're not charging that that's state-sponsored activity. We're not saying that hack is done by the SVR. That was solar winds, but right? Some hacks were, according to your colleagues, done, it seems, at the behest of the state. Some of the uh, ransomware. 
well, solar wind certainly was organized by by the state. The ransomware stuff is sort of it's sort of like a drug cartel problem, right? You've got cartels that are living in this corrupt society, and they pay off probably a fair number of of um, uh, government officials, but in the end, they're acting for profit, right? And the question is, how much is the state tolerating it? That is an area no, it's where more than that, this state actually enables it and uses it sometimes. Well, they sometimes do because sometimes the hackers who work for the state during the day do ransomware at night and vice versa. Uh, but um, this is an area where I think you could see Putin feign to take some take some action for a little bit. Um, sort of the way Xi Jinping stopped the uh, attack, the cyber attacks to steal um, intellectual property after the meeting with Obama in the Rose Garden and their big announcement. That lasted, what, maybe a year, right? Before they moved, the, they moved those attacks to the uh, Chinese intelligence service, the Ministry of State Security, who were, who were more skillful at it. And I suspect that's probably what you'll see happen here. On the human rights area, you're not gonna see any, any, any significant progress. Clearly, this is a question of survival in Putin's mind for himself. Um, and David, you identified a few that, that you know, we can say we're working together. And you know, the Russians were useful in the first Iran deal. I'm, I have no doubt they will be useful in the second. So um, I, th I think the, the Biden team uh, will view this as successful if it's not Helsinki. You know, if, if well, that's a pretty low bar, wouldn't you say? Yeah. In other words, if the two presidents don't show up together and the president of the United States doesn't say, I believe everything Vladimir Putin just told me and he didn't hack the Democrats, yeah, I'd say they can pass that bar. I, I'm, I'm willing to put, I'm putting money down on that one, David. <laughs> right. But I think you're going to see here a lot of spin that's going to yeah. go, that was, that was Trump. This is now. Biden is going to be firm. And he's going to say, we're going to stand up to them where we got to stand up to them. And we're going to work with them where we can work with them, which was, by the way, exactly what they've said about China. And by the way, mm -hmm. it seems to me exactly the right thing to say. Um, so with just a couple of minutes to go, let me go to you, David, and then I'll go to you, to, to you Evelyn. When you, we get to the other side of this, given everything that we now know and said, and we look at this trip, what do you think the verdict's going to be, David? I think the verdict is going to be that um, Biden did well. I don't think it's going to be like um, the moment of Eisenhower Khrushchev in 1955, the last one that took place in this city. You covered that, David. I'm certain. I was just going to say that was the first one you covered. Is that you're yeah, in this right? room there that you covered it from, actually? Yeah, um, they kept it for me and, and dusted it off when we got back. Uh, so. Um, you know, that was at a brief moment where Eisenhower thought he could sort of avoid the worst of the Cold War and that we could work things out. Remember, it was six years after the Russians had exploded their first nuclear test. And uh, it was a moment where he thought, you know, we could we could make things come together. And we did for a few years. And then we plunged into the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, I think that's kind of where we are in the cyber world right now. You know, we're, you know, everybody's developed their weapons. People have used them, but not in a serious way. We haven't had that big crisis yet. And Biden's trying to head that off. And look, at this moment with the Russians, 
I give big points for just keeping things from blowing up in the big crisis. Because we're not going to, you know, the, the dream of, of the early 90s, the Yeltsin years, the integration of Russia into Europe, we're all going to, you know, that maybe there'll be a NATO member one day. I think that one's gone. I think that's a fairly safe bet. So at this point, we're into the world of crisis management. Yeah, no, no question about that. The, when I was in the Clinton administration, there was this kind of euphoria about Russia. And we thought, now that they're not communists, they'll all turn into like Oklahoma or someplace. And that didn't exactly happen. Um, uh, I've, I'd like Evelyn's reaction to this. And then David, if you can hang on for one more minute, I, I've got a final question for you, yeah. Okay. I mean, my reaction is, you know, that, that it's been a resounding success. Um, you know, Biden went, I mean, in, in essence, he almost like held his democracy summit already, although I understand they're still gonna do that um, because he had the G7 and then he had um, the NATO summit and both of those things reaffirmed democracy, democracy united against autocracy. And, and, and ultimately the Vladimir Putin meeting really was only you know, put on the calendar because the Russians were threatening to invade Ukraine again and had blockaded the Black Sea. And, and because, because Alexei Navalny wasn't being allowed to transfer from the, the prison where they're holding him to, to the hospital, and it was in that time frame that President Biden made the offer and that it happened. So it already achieved something because Alexei Navalny is still alive and there wasn't another huge invasion of Ukraine. So the, the follow on is hopefully they'll get some serious messages across that are credible that Putin will believe, but I still think he'll test them. So, um, you know, that the last bit of this trip, I don't think is going to feel quite as good. But overall, I think he really shored up the community of democracies. And this comes on the heel of work that he's been doing with our Asian democratic allies. And so I think it's a, it's a huge win for Biden. So one last question, and it comes from your first answer, David, but I, I didn't want to gloss over it. Um, because I think if there, you know, if, if a hi historian looks at it, and this really is the first summit with, with a cyber centerpiece, this is a watershed. And you are the leading expert on this. And I'm wondering, you know, what the long-term consequences of that may be. Um, you'll read a little bit about this in the New York Times in uh, coming hours. Uh, but um, one of the things we learned in the nuclear age was we're not getting the global zero anytime soon. And you know, for a long time, people came around thinking there's gotta be a technological fix to all these cyber attacks. There's gotta be a, a wall you can build, a, a, you know, a, a firewall of some kind, a way that we're gonna insulate ourselves from all of these things. And the answer is there isn't. There's a combination of technological and political solutions to this, right? So in nuclear, it was a combination of arms control agreements and anti-missile defenses and strategy that made sure that you knew that you could never destroy our entire nuclear fleet. In the cyber world, it's different. 
treaties don't work. Too many people have the weapons. There are too many weapons out there. There's no way to verify. But I do think that this concept of a digital Geneva Convention, and here we are in Geneva, has got some legs. And remember, the original Geneva Conventions were about protecting civilians. And that's where we need to start with cyber. We need to start by thinking about who are the targets who are off limits in non-war time. And if you can begin to get a discussion going with Vladimir Putin on that topic, then it was, was a worthwhile, worthwhile start. I mean, I, I agree with you, but frankly, the Russians don't care. I mean, that's exactly their military doctrine hinges upon the fact that they can asymmetrically attack our society and innocent civilians in order to scare us off the battlefield. So um, I think you're right. And I think it's one way to kind of try to move the needle as we did with the Helsinki Human Rights Accords, um, that we raise these things, we get them to agree in public that they matter, even though they're, you know, as I mentioned in car, they just killed innocent civilians and they're doing it in Syria and in Russia. So um, I think we should though try um, that, that you, you framed it the right way. Well, I, think, I think we are trying and I would, David, I would add, uh, Geneva is also the home of the WTO. And if there is a need uh, in terms of multilateral accords, there's also a need for multilateral accord for how do you trade safely in technologies, um, which is, is something that, that we're not able to do. And I think these are both things that people within the Biden administration are, are seriously looking at. So they could be legacies of this. Um, but I, you know, I think the report, the analysis of both of you is quite heartening. Uh, and if I can be allowed 20 seconds of editorializing, uh, although I did this a little bit in my Daily Beast column and in some other places recently, you know, if you look at what this administration has done in five months, going back into the Paris Accord, re-entering the discussions with uh, Iran, uh, trying to restore relations with uh, allies, uh, a, a trip inter uh, interaction, uh, at our southern border that's now resulted in a uh, cabinet level uh, security review with Mexico and the United States, or re-look at addressing the root causes of migration, um, prioritization of climate change in a material way, managing through the Ukraine crisis, managing through the Israel crisis, uh, it's teeing up this trip, getting the deliverables of this trip, managing all of this through the real sort of low-key blocking and tackling of, uh, of diplomacy, uh, it's a good start. And, it's, and it's, it's a far cry from the unilateralism of Bush or the national narcissism of Trump, um, but it's also a better start than Bill Clinton or Barack Obama did and got off to. And you know, it goes back to David's reference to history. Um, it's all because I think in large part, here's a president with more foreign policy experience than any in our history. When Joe Biden entered the Senate, Leonid Brezhnev was running the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, you know, he had, and it was 1973. So it was 48 years ago. This guy has been dealing with this stuff at a high level. And even if he doesn't hit the ball out of the park on every pitch, he's got a very good batting average for the first five months of the administration. So, uh, David, I really appreciate your taking the time out. 
uh, while you are there um, suffering in Geneva in the probably the squalid Motel Six like <laughs> setting that you can see it. <laughs> has 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 put you in. Um, uh, uh, Evelyn, I know that you are super busy with you know commenting on this at this particular moment in time. Uh, as one of uh, our top experts. And I'm very grateful to both of you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who want updates on all of this, keep following at the dsrnetwork.com. We've got a lot of interesting uh, shows uh, uh, coming up. Um, and uh, uh, if you wanna click membership and support what we're doing, please do. Uh, we're coming up on the fourth anniversary of the DSR Network. And when we can get Sanger back here in one piece, uh, we'll get everybody together and we'll have a little virtual party to celebrate that. Uh, so thank you, David. Thank you, Evelyn. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.